Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Morning. There was a guy who was stranded on an island for many years, a deserted island, and finally he was rescued. And the rescuers noticed that he had built three huts. When they rescued him, they couldn't help but ask what the three huts were. So the guy goes, well, the first one's my house. What's the second hut? Well, that's my church. Oh, well, what's the third hut? And the guy goes, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) You know, I heard people say, ministry would be great if not for the people. Have you heard this? Well, here's the thing. People come in all sorts of personalities and idiosyncrasies, and we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us and kind of move away from people who are a little different than us. But I'm here to tell you that the church is filled with all kinds of people, and we can all learn and get along with one another. And I like to look at people who are different than me that are in Christ. They can become what I call heavenly sandpaper to help rub the rough edges off my life. Now, Jesus is a great example of what he had 12 guys that he hung out with. Did they ever get in conflict? Did they ever become like children? We see this. They had conflict, had ego problems, they had arguments and all kinds of challenges. I mean, think of James and John. They were egocentric, egotistical enough to ask Jesus that we want to sit on your right and left hand when you go to heaven. And then their stage mother couldn't help but plod that along too. And then Peter was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, right? Mary and Martha had sisterly spats. Jesus' mother coerced Jesus to turn water into wine. His mother and brothers actually thought Jesus was nuts and came to get him to bring him home. (laughs) And imagine how the nine other guys felt that Peter, James, and John got backstage passes to Jesus' life, and they didn't. And don't forget about Judas. Relationships are hard. We're in a series called The Truth Heals Set Free from the Problems of Life. It doesn't mean you won't have problems in life, but you can truly be set free from them and have peace in your life. You've heard that the truth hurts. Well, the truth doesn't have to hurt. The truth can heal if we're open enough to minister to by the Word of God. There's certain things that we feel better about as far as doctrine issues. Some of us might go, uh, oh, yeah, he's you know, talking about relationships, and I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I have to honestly say that was like one of the hardest things for me to get in life. I didn't know how to do that, and I kind of learned later in life, and I'm still learning how to have relationships, and it's really hard even now today because we're half the time having relationships over a cell phone or over social media, and we're disconnected. And that's why the church is so important where the family of God gathers. So today we're going to talk about that the truth can heal relationship problems. There's three keys to healthy relationships. Number one is know the truth of who you are in Christ. Now, sometimes when we hear a sermon, you know, it's like five ways to have a better relationship, 10 ways not to hit your friend or whatever, you know, (laughs) 11 ways to handle money better. Well, I'm here to tell you that these things, 
that I'm talking about today, if you try to do them in your flesh, it never works. I used to hear these sermons and go, if I just like, just do better. You know, I never do better. Like for one day, maybe. But the main thing about relationships with other people is you have to know who you are in Christ. And you have to be secure in who you are in Christ. You have to be secure in your identity in Christ. Because so many of the problems in relationships stem from insecurity, pride, and ego. Last week, we talked about the importance of not only knowing about grace, but believing grace and what God has for you and what he's done for you. And if you're not secure in who you are, you can never be secure in a relationship with other people. You can't. One of the most incredible events to me that happened that's documented in the Bible is when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And to put it in perspective, he did this the day before he was going to go to the cross and die for our sins. Jesus is always looking at other people above himself. John, the apostle, is the only one who wrote this incident in his gospel. And here includes two very important verses that I think we skip over. We kind of go right to the foot washing, which is incredible in itself. But we skip over these two verses in John 13, verses 3 through 5, because John starts it out this way by saying, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Why did John the Apostle set that foot washing event up with the fact that Jesus knew who he was, where he was going? Because if you don't know who you are and where you're going, you will never feel comfortable washing someone else's feet. And I think that's where it has to start. We have to know what God did for us. We're in the same position as Christ, in Christ, right? We will rise with Christ, and we're going to the Father to be with Christ. And right now, being in Christ, we should be secure in the fact that we have His Holy Spirit as believers, and that we can put on the foot-washing clothes, garments, and wash other people's feet. Because relationships can only be as healthy as the partners involved are healthy. I mean, I've spent years in counseling and I, a lot of that stuff, and that's good. That's good. But until you get to the point where you believe what God says about you above what you think about yourself and what other people think about you, you will never be secure enough to wear that foot-washing wardrobe. You might fake it, but you're always expecting something in return. And this is true in all relationships, friendships, marriage, church, family relationships, because relationships fall apart when someone is not willing to wash the other's feet without expecting something in return, like Jesus said. That's why Jesus said this in John 15, 13. Read it with me. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love. <laughs> Do you know even what a step beyond that is? Jesus died for his enemies, which were us. The Bible tells us that we were enemies of God. Hostile towards him. But by his grace, he drew us to himself and opened our eyes to our salvation in Christ. 
Number two, in order to have healthy relationships, we have to incorporate the one another's of Scripture into your life. Fifty-nine times in the Bible, God tells us to do something for someone else. I had listed some of them. Love one another. Encourage. Forgive. Care for. Help. Submit to. Strengthen. Be devoted to. Be patient with. Live in harmony with. Instruct, admonish, be humble toward, be compassionate toward, be at peace with, be kind to one another. How many of those can you check off the list? I mean, I'm not saying that we don't incorporate these things much of the time, but speaking for myself, I know a lot of the times it's not just my natural default because I'm not living in the spirit. Now, here's the thing. There are two Greek words for other in the Bible. Alas and eteros. It's different than English. I love Greek because it's very specific. Alas means another of the same kind. Eteros means another of a different kind. When Scripture says love one another, it uses that word one another. It's the word alelon, which comes from the root word alas, which means another of the same kind. So when Jesus says this, a new commandment, this is after he washes their feet, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, alelon, which is one of the same kind, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all other people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. If another person that's not part of the church would come in, how would he know or she know that we are disciples of Christ? By how much we know about the Bible? No, how we love one another. And this sums up God's command when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another, because if someone truly loves someone else, all the other one another's fall in line. I can't forgive one another, someone else, if I don't first love them. And I can't live in harmony with another if I don't first love them. Now, Jesus didn't say they will know you are my disciples if you have love for eteros, which is someone different than you. But we should love our neighbor, and we don't know our neighbor. We don't know if our neighbor is a believer or an unbeliever, but we should love our neighbor. But love first has to be exhibited with the alelon, which is the one another's in the church. So again, what is God referring to when he says love one another? And when I said those who are the same of you, does he mean the same personality? No. What does he mean? The same spiritually as you. Because if you're in Christ, then we are to love the others who are like us in Christ, just as Christ did. So a one another is someone who's in Christ, a believer, someone who's born of the Spirit of God by faith in Christ. Because here's the bottom line. If you're really honest, think about it. Can you truly love someone who's not like you if you can't first love one someone who's like you spiritually? And I think a lot of times we get it backwards. 
You know, that's why the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering with other believers, the one another's. Why? Because when we're together, we get to practice how to truly love as Jesus loved. And then we go out into the community and we can show that love because we first loved our brother and our sister in Christ. And that's why John the Apostle says, if you say that you love God and can't love your brother, you don't love God. Because if you can't love someone you see who's like you in Christ, then how can you say you love God? I know a lot of people say, oh, I love Jesus. I just don't really get it. I don't like the church. You know, or, you know those Christians, you know, they're judgmental, you know. And is anyone in here perfect? The only one that's perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ. So until we get that, we're on a journey together in your marriage, in your church, in the one another's? And does loving the same person spiritually like you make it easier? No, sometimes it's even harder because I think we expect that person to be perfect. Oh, they're a Christian. They shouldn't do that. When if we just really looked at the facts of the matter that we all fall short of the glory of God, even though we are in Christ, I think then the walls can come down and the expectations can come down. Then we can truly wash each other's feet with humility. Let me tell you something. The church will let you down. People will let you down. Will Jesus ever let you down? No. So when people say, I left the church many years ago, I got mad at somebody. I'm like, Jesus died for that person. Go and reconcile. Try and work it out. Jesus says, forgive as the Lord Jesus forgave you, as he has forgiven us. Because the real crux of the matter is, if I love my brother or sister, I should forgive them if they hurt me. Because that's what Jesus did for me. And number three, the third thing, key to a healthy relationship, is be of the same mind as Christ. Now, remember I told you that when you become a believer, you receive the mind of Christ. The Bible is very clear about that. Does that mean you know how to use it? Does that mean that you employ his mind and everything? No, half the time we don't. That's why the Bible says renew your mind in the word of God. We are learning the mind of Christ and being renewed in his word as his word is renewing us by his spirit. That's why God's word is so important because we're becoming the people God wants us to be in his spirit. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians church, make my joy complete by seeing of the same mind, maintaining the same love, and this can only happen when we're living and walking in the Spirit. A lot of times, we're not. And the flesh comes out. Jesus, the night before he's crucified, prays this incredible prayer. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. We get a glimpse of Jesus praying to his Father in heaven. And he says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So remember, we already established that the truth is the word of God. Jesus is the word. He's the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's speaking of the disciples that were with him. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And then he says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Raise your hand if we're one of those people. Okay, so everyone in here, Jesus prayed for you. What does he pray? 
that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And check this out. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let me ask you this. An unbeliever walks into a church service or in a church gathering or or wherever, you're at your house and you're having fellowship, whatever that is. According to Jesus, how does that one person come to realize who Jesus is? By the way we treat each other. By the way we love one another. It makes total sense. That's why Jesus sums it up this way. It's the golden rule, right? Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. How many people have tried to do that and then they don't treat you that way? That's not the point. It's not how they treat you. It's how we treat other people. And this is why I say this is a very difficult word because until I'm ready to do this, I'm not ready to wash someone's feet without thinking I'm getting something else in return. I'm not ready to lay down my life for that person. And I get convicted because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, look, he's the pastor and his life must be you know, perfect. That's hogwash. That's never true. Don't ever look to me and think that I am any different than you are. I struggle. My wife's in, in Illinois for a week, so we haven't fought for a week because she's not at home. But the point is that people go, oh, they must have. No, we're all sinners fall short of the glory of God, but we're saints in Christ. We just don't act like it. We're not employing, I'm not employing the mind of Christ. Now we're going to talk. I always want to go finding yourself in the story because it's important for us to find ourselves in the narrative and not disconnect. So today we're going to just look at Matthew 5 that Tom read from, okay? This sermon was given by Jesus. It was his first recorded sermon. It was right at the beginning of his ministry. It's a sermon on how to live when you're part of the kingdom of God, basically. What is expected from kingdom dwellers. The information in the sermon reveals how a righteous person should think and behave. The underlying purpose of Jesus' sermon is actually, when you think about it, to reveal the fact that you could never do this, and that's why you need a Savior. In fact, Jesus says this in his sermon. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Imagine hearing this and going, I can't even get my life together. Look at those guys that got those nice robes on. You know, they look really good on the outside. They must have their life together. No, Jesus is saying this because nobody has their life together. Here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It's the self-righteous people that go, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. It's the self-righteous people that go, oh, yeah, I do that. Who are you kidding? Nobody does that. The people hearing this would agree with Jesus that, yes, that's how I should live. But he says, if I don't surpass even the righteousness of the religious leaders, I'm not getting into heaven. In a response to an encounter with a rich man who would not sell his possessions and follow Jesus. He told his disciples, 
that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that story? Their response was, well, Jesus, then who can be saved? And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's impossible for you to enter heaven on your own merit. You need God. You need Jesus. That is the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Because if Jesus actually thought that we could do these things, he would never go to the cross. The cross would be meaningless. He would never take our place. He would say, oh, you guys got it. You're good. I'm going back home to heaven. Good luck. No, because he knows that we can't. There's no one ever created, especially after the fall in Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3 until the kingdom of God is restored fully on earth and heaven. Nobody's going to do this. Keep that in mind. I want you to, as we go through this, the purpose of this sermon is to remind us that we need Jesus. We need a Savior. Okay? Now, it does deal with important things. So we're going to talk about those things, but we're going to also see how it fits into grace and God's forgiveness. Number one, do not remain angry. Do not remain angry, Jesus says. There's a little kid, and he's asking his grandma, Grandma, you've been married for 50 years. How'd you do it? He said, well, honey, when we got married, I wrote a list of the 10 things that we would forgive each other. And when Grandpa did any of those things to irritate me, I'd just say, lucky for him, it's on the list. And the kid goes, Grandma, do you remember what those 10 things are? And she said, no. I just figured anything he does to irritate me is on the list. (laughs) That's how we should be. We should have short accounts. Does Jesus keep a list of your sins? Thank God. I mean, whose file would be like this thick? Okay, have you ever irritated God? Yeah, all the time. So we can look at Jesus and we can see that it's important to not remain angry. And I say remain angry because Jesus got angry. God gets angry. But it's as when we don't reconcile that anger and it becomes bitterness and controls us, it leads to all kinds of problems. So in his sermon, Jesus takes the outward behavior and he ties it to the intention of the heart. So that's why he says, you have heard that the ancients or those of old were told you shall not commit murder. Does anyone know which commandment that is? It's the sixth one. Do not commit murder. And it doesn't say thou shall not kill. In Ecclesiastes, it talks about there's seasons and wars and things like this. It's murder. That's the issue. You have heard it said that you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be guilty to the court. Now Jesus says, but I say to you. So how is that? I mean, Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments that were given by God himself through Moses to Israel, and Jesus says, but I'm going to say this. What? Who gave you authority to do this? Well, God the Father did I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, that word raka means empty-headed, 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, which is the highest court, and whoever says you fool, the word is maros, which means stupid, shall be guilty enough to go into the fire of hell. That's pretty intense. Have you ever called someone a name? Well, here's the thing about calling people names. That comes from a heart of anger. So it's the anger behind that that is causing that to come out of your mouth. And when we do that, we murder our brother or sister because it turns into bitterness and we're actually killing ourselves. You know, anger and danger are one letter away. And if you can't resolve your anger in a healthy way, it turns into bitterness and you will be in extreme danger, not only emotionally, but physically. Do you know that unresolved anger and bitterness causes a huge bunch of physical symptoms? One of which is depression. A lot of people who are struggling with depression, I'm not saying everyone, a lot of people who are struggling with depression, if you look at the cause behind that, it really has to do with unresolved anger and bitterness and unforgiveness because it's killing you. Now, I told you that God says that anger itself is not a sin because he actually says in Ephesians, be angry. So being angry is not a sin. When you're angry at something or someone, that in itself might not be sinful. And it says, yet do not sin. So how do you sin in anger? It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You got to deal with it. You can't let it just fester. Because what happens is when you don't do this, the devil gets a foothold. Literally, the word is tapos in Greek, which you get our word topography, a place. You give the devil a place in your home, in your heart, in your mind, if you are not able to forgive, because that's the cure. Now, let me tell you this. A lot of people get confused between forgiveness and trust. Can I forgive someone, but yet not trust them? Yes, that's called maturity and wisdom. You know, you got to use wisdom. You don't keep putting yourself in situations that you just like, oh, yeah, give me another. Thank you. Give me another, you know. But the thing is, forgiveness is a gift. Do you know that? To whom? Yourself. Because the other person might not even know. Trust is earned. That's why the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Has God earned your trust? Yes. So don't get mixed up. Next is do the ministry of reconciliation. Do the ministry of reconciliation. Because Jesus has just said that bitterness towards someone breaks God's law. Okay, unresolved anger, unforgiveness. Then he goes on, therefore, with that context, that remaining angry is breaking God's law. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, which is the atmosphere of worship, like right now, you're at church, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, in context, it would seem to me that this something that your brother has against you has something to do with you, right? You maybe called him a name, or you are angry with them. Jesus is saying, if you're in church, and why is that? Because God has your attention. And a lot of times we try to just be in denial. Everything's going to work out okay, you know, and then 20 years down the road, you're like, why am I so sick? 
Why is everything not going the way I thought? A lot of it, if you go back, it's that God is convicting you and you have a hard heart and you're not at least willing to say, Lord, speak to me. You know, that's why if I didn't think that God's word can change my life and change your life, I wouldn't be up here. And that's why when we come to worship, we should come with the attitude, Lord, speak to me. And this is my 26th year, by God's grace, of full-time vocational ministry. There's been many times where I've shown up to church and I think, oh my gosh, whether it be my wife or someone else, and I'm going to go up there and lead worship or I'm going to go up there and teach and preach and I go, I can't, I need to deal with this. I call them or I text them. I would suggest the best way to deal with conflict, especially at a deep level, is don't email. Set up a time, call them. Set up a time to be face-to-face The point is that you're doing your due diligence to try and reconcile for something that you might have had a part in. Now, here's the thing. It might not be all your fault, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You take care of your part. Jesus goes on. If that happens, that you're in church, you're in the attitude of worship, and you remember this, leave. Also, no one's getting up to leave. (laughs) This would be your chance. No, I'm just kidding. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. And what he's saying is do it quickly, don't wait. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, be reconciled to your brother is a passive verb, so it has to be done to you. Being reconciled can only come when you realize how God has reconciled you to himself. So you be reconciled. And then you can reconcile with other people. I remember I said you have to know who you are in Christ, and you have to be secure in that to know where you're going. So he says, go and try and reconcile. And the word reconcile, it has a connotation of change. Something has to change. Now, can you change someone else? No. Can you change yourself? Yeah. If not, who are we going to blame? You ever hear the saying, you can't keep your neighbor's side of the street clean, but you can keep your own side of the street clean? It's the same thing. You can't change the other person, but someone has to be mature enough and humble enough to change. And it has to be the person that's willing to let God take control and submit to him rather than that pride and ego taking over. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's part of who we are in Christ, is to reconcile with others. And then next, do not lust. Jesus goes on a sermon a little later. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Does anyone know what commandment that is? It's the next one after 6, 7. So Jesus again quotes from the commandments, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if any person in here does not realize that this actually happens, you're clueless because we live in a world that this is all over the place and nothing ruins a relationship especially the marriage relationship, more than this. And if I love someone, I won't do this. 
Remember I said thoughts, it begins with thoughts, and it moves to feelings which control our behavior if we're not letting God control our heart. Every sin comes from the heart. That's why Jesus said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth or their behavior come from the heart, and these defile them. So a lie would be just follow your heart. Do you think that's good advice to tell someone, just follow your heart? What's the truth of God's word say about your heart? It's deceitfully wicked. So don't follow your heart. Follow God's heart. Believe what he says. Now, would you say that our society has a lust problem? Would you say that the advertisers know this? That's their whole thing. If they weren't going after lust, every commercial wouldn't even be there. They know what they're doing. John says in his epistle, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. Now, lust is an age-old problem. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and let's see what happened. So when the woman, Eve, saw that saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the eyes, and that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. So that's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of the life, everything right there. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And sin came into the world, and we're all under sin, unless we're under grace in Christ. Some people go, oh, I'm not a bad person. We can't use that argument if we're truly believing what God says, that there's no one good. And what does that mean? Can people do good things? Yeah. But this is not a good versus bad behavior thing. This is an infection that's in our body that has to be eradicated by the blood of Christ. Everyone has sin. Now, it's important to know this too. Is temptation a sin? Why? How do we know that? Jesus was tempted. Good answer. Jesus. So if Jesus is without sin, if temptation were a sin, then he would not be sinless. I always think of what someone said. He said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest there, right? So the temptation comes, like you watch TV, or you're on the internet, whatever, it's there, man. It's all over the place. We live in a culture that is infiltrated to the degree where we don't even realize it anymore. I remember 20 years ago watching a commercial going, how oh, they get away with that? And now I look at them, I go, oh my gosh, that was nothing. That was like Mr. Rogers. We have to admit it. And then next, do stay married. Now, maybe some of you in here have gone through a divorce, and this is not about condemnation, because God, we're not under his condemnation. But I'm going to talk about the truth, because we have to realize this. There's no more important relationship than marriage. In Matthew 19, a situation arises where the Pharisees were testing Jesus by asking if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And Jesus answers by quoting from Genesis. He says, God made them male and female. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says this, 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God has joined the two married people together. The Pharisees said, why did Moses then command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, because you had a hard heart. And Moses, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't meant to be that way. That's the truth. Divorce is not part of God's plan. It's the truth, okay? Then he said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give. So we're back at the Sermon on the Mount. Let him give her a certificate of divorce. So he's quoting from Moses. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is the act of having sexual relations with anyone who's not your covenant spouse. The punishment for this was stoning. The word divorce in Greek is apoluso. Apo means away. Luso means to untie or release. So divorce is sending someone away, which sets into a motion of entirety of pain and regret. A pastor shared a story with me once. He said, I met a husband and wife who asked to be remarried after 30 years of being divorced. The man told me that 30 years ago, he got mad and separated. Then he said he did a stupid thing called divorce. He said to me, I guess we were both too proud to apologize. He went on to say, well, all these years, we've lived alone. And now we see how foolish we've been. Our bitterness has robbed us of the joys of life. And now we want to remarry so we can have a few years of happiness together before we die. Someone had to change. Divorce is painful. Matthew 19, 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for this reason, which is what? Sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. I have met people, though, who have even gone through that pain and reconciled and forgave each other. Is marriage just a ceremony? You know what marriage is biblically? Marriage biblically... (laughs) is the act of becoming one flesh. It's the consummation of marriage. That's why Jesus said that the only excuse for divorce is the breaking of the covenant of the one flesh. Now, do you know as a believer that you're married to Jesus? Do you know this? This is because of the new covenant. See, the marriage covenant is a covenant. God has brought you together and you're standing with him and usually in front of other people and you say, I'm making this covenant. Now, does God break his covenant with you? So I want you to get this. This is not what God intended. Now, Paul illustrates this beautifully by comparing man and wife, husband and wife, with Christ and his church. In Ephesians, when he says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, take in mind the body illustration here. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
The one flesh union in marriage is the picture of a one flesh union with Jesus and the church. Jesus, we are one flesh with him by his spirit, but it's a covenant. And when we break that covenant, it's painful. Now, is God's forgiveness limited? Thank God, no. Right? Can I be forgiven of all sin? Every sin. And that's what happened when you came to Christ in faith. Every sin was wiped away. So God says, I don't even remember them anymore. And then daily, we confess our sins so that we can have a close relationship with God. God, I screwed up. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm wrong. But does forgiveness, does God's forgiveness wipe away the consequences of sin? That's the reality. Because every decision we make has a consequence. And the greatest consequence is to reject God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. That's where your new life begins. The most important relationship you have is with Jesus Christ. Therefore, obedience to him is of utmost importance. I tell people when I'm giving them some counseling before they get married, I say, trust in Jesus. I had this friend once say, trust in Jesus, everyone else is suspect. That's not how we should live, right? I mean, we should learn to trust each other. But if you put your hope in your spouse, you are going to be let down. You put your hope in the Lord first. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So if I obey God, if I love God, I'm going to obey God, and therefore you have a problem because your friends might not like it, other people might not like it, but if Jesus is your first and utmost relationship that you have and the most important person in the world, you put him first. I'm going to end with this. Jesus said something incredible. A lot of people go, oh, Jesus brings peace and everything. Yes, he brings peace eternal peace. But he said, for I came, check this out, for I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household, because he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And if you do that, you will be let down. Don't love anyone or anything more than Jesus. Anything. Next week, we're going to talk about the truth heals financial problems. And there's a lot of people who, that's one of their idols. Good, now I just said that. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag and nobody's going to come. <laughs> but no, it's important to know the truth, at least, about what God says about these things. And we talk about relationships today, but you have to be willing to believe And trust God in what he says above your own feelings, above your own thoughts, because that's how you have peace in your life. And other people might get upset at you, but God is smiling and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Because if you try to get anything from anyone that only Jesus can give you, you will fall short and you will be let down. He's the only one that can fill that emptiness in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us the importance of relationships, but the most important relationship is the one we have with your son, Jesus Christ. If there's anyone in here today who has not started that relationship, 
in trust and belief in him as their Lord and Savior, the one who died for them on the cross, and receive that forgiveness, I pray that they would do that now. Just open their heart, say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, and I want you to come into my life. I don't understand it all, but thank you for dying for my sins, and thank you for rising from the dead and for giving me new hope and new life. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. And Lord, I pray for this church, and I pray for the church in general, that we'll take our eyes off the world, and we'll keep our eyes on Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason, so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com.